All right, if you have your Bibles, we encourage you to open up to the book of Daniel. We're going to be in chapter 8. This is a pretty incredible chapter, and we have now left behind the the part of Daniel that was written in Aramaic, and now we're moving into the Hebrew uh, writing. And so now we're getting into a lot of the prophecies that was going to directly impact the Jewish people. In fact, this particular chapter is one of the best chapters because... It's controversial in the sense that um, the the people that don't believe that God truly is God and that he is omniscient, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, they're the ones that look at this passage and they're saying there's no way that this could have been written in the time frame that it was written in. But the reality is is that we have copies of of this manuscript, of this book going back uh, before the time that the prophecies have, that are talked about in this particular chapter, the in fact, in particular, the rise of Alexander the Great, the rise of the Medes and Persians, we have copies of this before some of those events happened. And so we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was written and this never really been in question um, in the minds of those that truly believe in God's word that this was written after the events that it's talking about take place. But that's the only criticism they have because honestly, and, and there are a lot of detractors from God's word, people that don't believe that God truly is God, have tried to discredit the book of Daniel because Daniel is one of the the quintessential books on prophecy. He is so specific that God speaking through Daniel about the rise of the kingdoms that are about to take place that we're going to talk about here. They're so unbelievably specific that there is no question in anybody's mind who they're talking about. In fact, we're going to get to this later, but when Alexander the Great was making his conquest through the world, and he did it like in three years, he was able to destroy, to to basically completely take over the entire Near East. When he showed up at Jerusalem and was about to take that city too, the high priest came out and said, before you do this, we want to show you how in God's word, in our scripture, in the book of Daniel, how your name and your rise to power um, was mentioned. Even though he wasn't given a name, he was definitely discussed and talked about as the first king of, of Greece that was going to conquer all this. And when Daniel, or when, when, when Alexander read what that was, he knew immediately that it was a prophecy of his own work, and he according to to tradition he knelt down and worshiped the one true god and did not conquer israel left jerusalem alone and went on to conquer the rest of it now obviously jerusalem wasn't in a state uh, with their political or or um, or military might where they could even possibly hope to counter um, what alexander had to offer and so there was no doubt that they were part of alexander's kingdom uh, but they just weren't destroyed or taken down there was no battle being fought um it was obvious that God was hand was moved. I, just a powerful, powerful passage. So we're looking at chapter 8 today, and, and the best part about chapter 8 is I don't have to give you any opinions on the prophecy. I don't have to give you any suppositions. I don't have to try to, um, try to uh, look forward or look in Scripture to try to figure out what it is because the best part about this particular chapter of all the chapters in Daniel, there is no ambiguity. The, the God actually reveals to us exactly what he meant when he gave Daniel this prophecy. So we're going to read through it. We're going to look at it. Um, but I want you guys to, to understand, first of all, the main theme of the overriding book of Daniel. And that is, A, God is on the throne and in control. That no king will ever rise 
or fall without the express knowledge and will of God. And that is that was true then, it is true today. I know a lot of us are looking at the news. A lot of us are wondering what's going to happen. A lot of us are questioning who's going to be in charge in this area or that area. But I'm telling you now that every single person that's put into authority over us, from the lowest person to the highest person, is all on God's heart and knows exactly what's happening. And it doesn't really matter who sits in the White House because God is still on the throne. Yeah, maybe my guy didn't make it. Maybe my guy did. But either way, God is still on the throne. And we need to remember that. That's the primary theme out of the book of Daniel. Now, in this particular chapter, the theme that Daniel is getting out of this is that get ready for a rough ride. Because it's about to get rocky and dicey. And that peace, Daniel, that you have had throughout the last, you know, five, six decades of your life is about to end. And it's about to get incredibly tumultuous and many of the people you know right now will not be alive in, to, in five to six, seven years. And so that's kind of what, da what God is telling Daniel is to get ready for the ride. Um, and then he begins to give him the prophecy that's going to take place. And some of the prophecy here doesn't actually uh, get fulfilled for another four hundred years. God is laying out the prophecy of what's going to happen in the lives of the children of Israel for the next 400 years, all in one chapter. Pretty powerful if you think about it. Let's go ahead and turn to God's word and let's begin to read. Starting in the first verse, chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. It says that in, um, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king the, um, Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. That was chapter 7. We had a vision. We had the dream. Remember, Daniel was very concerned. It had those four beasts that came out of there. Daniel said, I get the first three, but what about that fourth one? It's kind of really making me nervous. Um, and God uh, uh, gave him a, a lot of comfort, a lot of thoughts and ideas, but didn't give him all the answers that he wanted. And now the third year of the reign, this is after that first vision. Daniel is given another vision. In verse 2, it says, I looked in the vision, and it came about while I was looking that which uh, that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside Uli, the Uli Canal. And then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. And now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. And I saw the ram budding westward and northward and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself." And while I was observing, some versions say thinking on this, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram, which had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram and he was enraged at this ram and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. And so he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. And then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. And out of one came a fourth 
one, uh, sorry, and out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the beautiful land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down, and it magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, with a capital H, obviously referring to God, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down, again, God's house. And on account of, tra of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling, um, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform uh, its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of the man between the banks of the Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and I fell on my face. And he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep. With my face to the ground, but, but he touched me and made me to stand upright. <clears throat> and behold, I am, he said, behold, I am going to let you know what will occur to the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. And the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Mede, Media and Persia. And the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is, is his first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose from its place represent four kingdoms which will rise from his nation, the, the, the one king of Greece, although not with his own power. And then verse 23 starts a um, sort of a, a poem, a poetic uh, uh, following that is part of the prophecy. Sometimes prophecy is given this way. In verse 23, it says this about the small horn. It says, in the latter period of their rule, Talking about the four horns that, that broke off from the single horn of Alexander, which would have been the four kingdoms that uh, took over after uh, uh, Alexander passed away. The four generals that took a piece of his kingdom. It says, in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressions have run their course, a king will rise insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Then verse 26 comes to the end of this chapter. As we come to the end of the chapter, it says, And the vision of the evenings and mornings which, is, which have been told is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. And then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. 
Wow, that's a pretty, uh, a pretty powerful, uh, pretty powerful statement. You know, you have to understand what's happening. Obviously, when you're looking at Scripture, the one thing that you need to look at is, um, and I've often said this, you know, there's a historical component to everything we read in Scripture. There is a spiritual component, and there is a practical component. And in this, there's obviously a historical component. Daniel is writing in the third year of Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar has passed away. Nabonidus, the overall king, has taken over, and he, for whatever reason, didn't like being the king in Babylon. So he had moved his own self and his armies outside and he was doing his thing and he made his son Belshazzar the king over Babylon proper in that province and then he went off and did his own thing and so Daniel is now in the in the palace he's still working in the administration and the government but there's a lot of intrigue in order for Belshazzar and Nabonidus to become king there was a succession of several short rules that happened short kings that that rose and that were killed or died off under mysterious circumstances and so there's a lot of turmoil that was happening and in the midst of all this there was this there was this other empire that was on the rise the empire of the Medes and the Persians and there was a lot of things that were happening and so about the time of this writing would have been the time that Cyrus the king that became the king over the Medes and the Persians had just begun to consolidate the two, um, the two, the two nations together, the Medes and the Persians. The Persians were really a, a smaller, very small territory thing, um, and they were starting to, to be on the rise where the Medes were, were in their ascendancy. They were about as powerful as they ever really got. And then eventually the Persians uh, sort of overcame that. And you see that in the prophecy as Daniel was laying this out. Now this is, again, stuff that had not yet happened but was beginning to. There was no way that Daniel would know that eventually the capital of the Persian Empire would be in, the, would be in, in, in Susa. Uh, which is where this vision took place. But it's interesting to see the connectivity of Scripture because it's in that palace, it's in that place that um, we see Ezra and Nehemiah taking place. It's in that place that we see the events that unfold in the book of Esther come about. It's in that place that Daniel has been transported in a vision that's going to happen. But at the time that Daniel was, was being transported in that vision, it was not anything. It was a blip on the radar. It wasn't even a, it probably wouldn't even big, be big enough to have made it onto a map. You understand what I'm saying? It was small, it was insignificant, but it was on the rise. And so Daniel was given this information and he was um, in, the, in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. Now, this would be in modern day Iraq. Um, is or sorry, modern day Iran is where this is, is taking place. But you have to understand at this moment, it seems like the known world is sort of has that collective breath being held. They're all really worried about what's going to happen next. I don't know if that doesn't strike a chord with what's going on right now. And I know Daniel is sitting there wondering. He's just gone through some amazing events in his life, from the lion's den to his, uh, his three good friends that were thrown into the fiery furnace to the um, uh, just all the things. That actually, the, the lion's den hasn't happened yet. I apologize. But he's gone through all these other events that God has revealed time and time again who he is to Daniel. Daniel has a complete and utter faith. But you have to know that the people around Daniel were not 
having the same level of faith. Everybody was concerned. And I look at our world today and I hear people talking on Facebook or in different forums or on the news, the few times I actually watch the news, or just going to the grocery store and I'm hearing the people really concerned, you know, who's going to be president? Who's going to take on the, uh, the roles? And when this person becomes president, what are they going to do? Are they going to undo what the previous administration did? Are they going to go further in what they've done before? Um, I have, don't have the answers to this. But I know God does. And I, no, matter, no matter what happens, God is still in control. But, you know, we can bring that right down to our local level. I mean, think about how many times we've been in situations where um, we've, had a, um, we've had a boss that, that uh, resigned at work. Or we had um, a church that went through some turmoil or some turbulent times. Or we had a business that we thought would be, would be recession-proof or would be there forever. And all of a sudden, they've closed. And they're the only place that we get things we need. I can't, I'll never forget when the radio shack in our town closed down. You know how hard it is to find some of the things that can only be found at Radio Shack? I mean, it's absolutely amazing to me um, just how much of the equipment and things that I normally use in my day-to-day -day life um, that I would normally go to Radio Shack to get. Now I have to order it from some company online and hope I get the right piece. Um, I, right now, and if you were to go back in our sound booth, you would see there's like three or four or five different cords that over the last six months, trying to figure out how to make this video stuff work, I've had to, I've had to, to buy and to order and send only to find that it was the wrong thing. And now I'm stuck with this cord that I'm probably never going to be able to use. You know, that's the nature of it. We're going through times where, where we don't really know what's going to happen, but we know God is in control. We know that God is placing our bosses over us. He's placing pastors in churches. He's preparing for whatever is going to come next. Just like the people that are in Congress, the Senate, the House, the Supreme Court, all avenues of governance, including the White House. God already has a plan. He's already moving forward. And his plan, believe it or not, is to make America great again. As much as, as many people like to, to use that phrase, and, and I'm not going to use that phrase to, to tear down any candidate or lift any other candidate up. But that's not God's focus. I hate to say that. And if that, if that makes you think I'm unpatriotic, then, then I'm sorry, you're a fool. Because I'm not. I have four adult children that are serving active duty in the military today. I have a son-in-law that's also serving active duty in the military today. My wife is a veteran. My father is a veteran of Vietnam. My grandfather is a vet. On both sides of my family were veterans of World War II. There is no more patriotic individual than me. I love my country dearly, but I'm here to tell you that this is not my home. My home is in heaven. My citizenship is with God and his kingdom that he's building. And ultimately, God is building something that's greater than America ever thought about being. And if you think America is great, I'm telling you, I'm not denying that. I'm not saying that we don't live in a great nation with great things. But I'm telling you this, that everything that we have that we consider great, it pales in comparison to what God has in store for us in heaven. And that's kind of what, what, what God is telling Daniel here. He says, it's going to get rough. It's going to get rocky. It's going to be crazy. Be prepared for it. And this is the title of my sermon, Wickedness, Wars, and Waiting. Because ultimately, you're going to be waiting for, for, for when I show up to make everything right. That's where we are. And we're right there now. 
We have wickedness in the, in, in the public sector. We have wars that are happening all over the world, even though we're not reporting them a whole lot because it seems like right now we're all dominated on this interior of squabble we're having over who's going to be in the White House. But the reality is there are wars happening all over the world. We have natural disasters that are on the rise, and it seems like the entire earth is just waiting for the trumpet to sound and God to come back and bring us his bride home and for the tribulation to begin and for the end times to actually happen. That's where we are right now. That's where we're faced. That's what we're struggling with. That's who we are. And that's where Daniel was when he got this vision. And he saw the goat and he saw the ram. The ram had two horns. We've talked about that. I like in verse 5 where it says, it says the word that the goat had a conspicuous horn. Talking about the, the goat that came from Greece. The, Greece, um, uh, the Greek, uh, which by the way, the goat in, the, in Greece, it's synonymous. It's like a big deal for them. And so there was no doubt in anybody's mind we're talking about Greece. In fact, the, the angel does say that this is Greece. But that goat that had that conspicuous horn. It's obvious that God is trying to say, yes, the Medes and Persians are powerful and they're going to come and they're going to build an empire that's going to be pretty amazing and they're going to make Mede and Persia great again. But in the process of all that, they're going to, they're going to do some things that are going to really irritate the Greek people. And at some point, at some point when God's going to raise up a king that's going to throw off the shackles of the Persian Empire. And he's going to race across with speed and swiftness. He's going to use every every power he has to tear down the, the Persian Empire. And that's exactly what Alexander does. That word conspicuous is really only found in this, in, in this book. It's only really found in this chapter. Um, the word there is, is kazuth, kazuth in the Hebrew. And it just means conspicuous here, but in other areas, it, it, it has a, a slightly different word. It talks about being decisive. It talks about um, uh, uh, having a little bit of foreknowledge. It's almost as though it's almost as though uh, Alexander was was operating with some sort of pre-knowledge, although we know that didn't happen because um, uh, he wasn't there. But it just gives that idea. So we know this word conspicuous. This word kazuth literally means it was it was out there. It was in front of everybody, and it was it was clear. And it was kind of interesting because if you know anything about history, you know that Alexander had a tendency to lead ba the battle from the front, from the vanguard, from the very center of the line. He didn't hold back on a hill and watch as, the, as his army fought his battle plan. He was down in the trenches fighting with his people. That's what made him so popular. Do you realize that he was 23 years old when he conquered all of Greece, all of Persia, and the entire Near East? 23 years old. I would. Those of you that are older than 23, think back to when you were 23 and ask yourself, what in the world were you doing at 23? Because it sure wasn't ruling the known world, right? I mean, this guy was pretty powerful. This Alexander was a pretty, pretty amazing guy. He was educated by Aristotle himself. He was brilliant. He was a tactician almost without peer in that day and age. Truly, a, a truly an interesting, inspired individual. My only sad, the only sadness I have about Alexander is that, to my knowledge and to the knowledge of Scripture and to what knowledge we have, that <clears throat> we don't know for a fact because obviously God is in control. But to our known knowledge, Alexander died unsaved. And so that is a sad thing. And this is what I see all the time in our public sector. Oftentimes we have these great, these great talents arise. Whether they're talents on the silver screen or whether they're talents on the, on, on the, on the basketball or football court or the baseball field. Um, these are great talents and they, they use their abilities, but they don't use them for God. 
They use them for themselves. And consequently, it doesn't work out so well for them because they may have a moment of ascendancy. They may have a moment where they are, the, they are on top of the world, so to speak. But in the, in the end, it's all going to come crashing down because in the end, um, God's still in control and it's his kingdom. And we're either on his team or we're not. And so it doesn't matter how good of a ball player we are or general we are. If we don't know Jesus Christ, our Savior, there's only one place we're going and that's hell, unfortunately. And we see that reflected in the scripture. When it talks about this mighty goat, it says that he magnified himself greatly, exceedingly. By age 33, he had conquered the known world and his army was tired of fighting. And so they pulled back to Babylon and they made Babylon the capital. And it was in the Babylon where Alexander contracted a, a, some sort of a fever or disease and eventually died. And in his death, his four generals sort of rose up. And I know some of you are saying, well, what does this all have to do with what we're doing? You have to follow me here because it's important. This does impact where we're at. A lot of people like to say that um, after the final book of Malachi that in, in the Old Testament that there was this 400 years of, uh, of, of silence from God. And that's not exactly true. I mean, yes, the prophets didn't rise up between the, the final written word the written prophecy we had to the day of Matthew when Jesus was born. But it doesn't mean God is silent about the events that are going to take place. In fact, he is incredibly articulate in this chapter alone about what's going to take place during those 400 years. And that's what we're getting to. This is how amazing God is. He knows what's going to happen. And verse 9 is where it gets a little crazy and weird. He's talking about the one, it says, out of those four horns that come up, the four generals that take over um, Alexander's kingdom, um, there's going to be one of them that's going to come up a little bit later. He's, he's going to start off a small horn. Look at verse 9. He's going to start off a small horn, and then he's going to grow exceedingly big and towards the south and the east. We're talking about the area of the Seleucid Empire, the one, the kid, the one general that took over the, sort of the middle of all the other ones. And he sort of got that middle ground, which included Palestine, which included Israel, which included Jerusalem. And he sort of oversaw that. And one of the things that Alexander wanted to do when he was making his kingdom, he wanted a kingdom that was going to last long beyond him. And he noticed that everywhere he went, there was different languages being spoke all over the place. But here's the beautiful thing that happened. Regardless of what you think about Alexander, whether he was a good conqueror, whether he was a bad general, whether he was just a crazy kid that went out of control, whatever you think about Alexander, the one thing he did for us is he gave us a vehicle for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, wait a minute, what do you mean? How did he give us a vehicle? It was because of what Alexander did that he made Koine Greek, the lingua franca of the world. Everybody, everywhere spoke Koine Greek. You say, well, what difference does that make? The entire New Testament was written in Koine Greek. Oh, okay. Well, we know languages changes over time. And the thing, the words that we use now don't always mean the same as they did a few years ago, let alone a hundred years ago. How do we know that Koine Greek is, is, um, is the same Greek today as it was in the day that was written by the apostles? Well, here's the beautiful thing. With the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Roman governor Titus, the Roman general, it effectively ended the last place in the world where Koine Greek was spoken commonly. And by that time, the entire New Testament had been written, except for a couple books written by John. And John wrote those in Greek as well. And so by that point, the language effectively ended as far as changing and mutated. And so the Greek that we read now 
in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way to Revelation, is the same Greek that was spoken by the apostles during the day that Jesus walked the earth. We know that beyond a doubt. And we also can say thank you, Alexander, for giving us that vehicle through which the entire Old and New Testament could be written and, and, and proliferated to the known world so that the gospel message could be the same the day that the apostles were preaching after Jesus was dead, buried, and resurrected to this very day today. It's all because of what Alexander did. God is so amazing in how he does this ahead of time. And so we see this in verse 9. It says that one of the horns was going to be east and south. We know that's in near Palestine. And just in case we're not sure, the prophecy says the beautiful land, which is always a euphemism for Palestine, for Israel, for Jerusalem. And it grew up in a host of heaven. It caused some of the hosts and the stars to fall. This is an incredible time. What's happening here is there is a guy. His name is Antiochus. And he calls himself Epiphanes. That's his own last name. It means the ascendant one, the, the, the incredible one, the amazing one. This guy was the, was the king. And he says, I'm going to make my territory all incredibly Greek. And as a Greek, we worship Zeus. And therefore, I'm going to make every province, everybody, everywhere that's under my reign worship the same God that I worship which is Zeus and so that's when he starts to cause a major problem in the life of the Israelites he went into Jerusalem he went into the temple and he defiled the temple and he put a statue of Zeus in the holy place and he made everyone that would worship the the um, uh, the image of Zeus in that place it's called the abomination of desolation it's going to lay the groundwork for that end time prophecy that's going to happen but yet to happen um, in the end time when the Antichrist for, firmly comes. And this is all that's happening right here. And this is the prophecy that, that, that God is laying out to Daniel ahead of time. He's saying it's going to get rocky. It's going to get crazy. It's going to get weird. But overall, I'm in control. That's what God is telling Daniel. And look what it says. It says, a holy one, when I, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said <laughs> to that particular one who was speaking. Basically, he's, he's using some, some uh, different way of, of writing. He's basically saying, um, I was nervous. So I asked the person who was speaking all this, what's going to happen? And we know it was Daniel that was speaking because in the very next verse, he, um, he says, when is this going to happen? How long is this going to take place? Um, and he says it's going to happen for 2,300 evenings and mornings. There's a, there's a little controversy about this in the timeline, but basically it comes out to being about, um, about seven years or so. Um, and I'm not really good at math. You can do your own math to figure this out. Um, some people like to say that it was actually um, half of that because we're talking about um, uh, evenings and mornings and how it was doubled. Um, I don't really know uh, the answer to this because we don't really have a good understanding. And the people that make the arguments on both sides have their own math. And the math works. Um, I like to just read scripture the way it says. It says 23 evenings and mornings. So, I mean, uh, 2,300 evenings and mornings. So I'm, ex I'm, I'm good with that. 2,300 uh, evenings and mornings. We're talking about 2,300 days. Um, and that's about the length of time it took for this king to push the Jewish people to the point where they had to cleanse the temple, which happened in consequently in December. Um, some dates have it as close to December 25th um, and as far away as December December 18th, which is actually kind of interesting because we're getting close to Christmas now. And I know one of the questions that people ask me all the time is, why do we worship, uh, why, do we, why do we take December 25th as a special day? 
Why do we look at that as, and, and say that's the day that Jesus was born, therefore we're going to worship and celebrate on that day? The reality is there's no right-thinking human being on the planet um, anymore that can, can make a cogent argument that beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was born on the 25th of December. We have no idea when he was born, but I can pretty much guarantee you it wasn't on the 25th of December. But you have to remember that this was a holy and special time for the Jews. It was a holy and special time for the early Christians who, for the most part, were Jews. And there was a desire to connect to that holy and special time. We didn't know when Jesus was born, but we're guaranteed that he was born. And he was born of a virgin. That we know. And so when he was born, the exact date is less important than it is to celebrate a day. And so when Christmas started to become um, celebrated, it was celebrated around the same time that the Jews celebrate their holiday known as Hanukkah, celebration of lights, the cleansing of the temple. And if you think about it, that's exactly what Jesus did. When he came and lived a sinless life, there was even at least twice that he did this in the temple where he cleansed it of the money changers. But the ultimate cleansing of the temple came on the day that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And he said, it is finished the Bible says that when he said that, the darkness came down, the clouds were, 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 were dark, and the veil in the temple rent in half. And it was at that moment that the temple itself ceased to be the location of the spirit of the living God. And now the spirit of the living God was free to roam among the entire world to call all men to him. It was at that moment that the true temple was cleansed. Peter talks about this. Paul talks about this, that the true temple is not a location in Israel. It is now representative of the body of, 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 of Christ. And the body of Christ is made up of living stones, lively stones, individuals, you, me, each one of us coming together. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy God. We are the ones where the Holy Spirit dwells in. He is not in a building made of brick and mortar by the hands of man. He is now dwelling into the bodies of the sons and daughters of the living God. And so that's why this is a precious and important thing that we're looking at when we're talking about the prophecy that was was laid down it was it was important for the jews then and it's just as important for us today verse 15 is when the interpretation of this great passage begins and we know what happened this is the as far as i know one of the first times that gabriel is actually used in scripture now we don't know much about gabriel but he seems to be um well we know he's an angel right and we know that he's a messenger because god oftentimes uses him not only in the old testament but the new testament to bring uh to bring a message to god's people he's bringing a message to daniel he's going to bring another message to daniel later on but but he's bringing this message he's saying here's the vision i uh, god's telling me this obvious here in verse 16 it says and i heard a voice of a man between the banks that's that holy one and we see that vision is also brought forward a little bit longer a little bit more clear in the next chapter but he says i heard the voice of that man between the banks and he calls out and he says hey gabriel he's giving a command right he's saying gabriel you are my servant you do as i tell you to do tell this individual what this vision means and so he does he talks about the goat. He talks about the ram. He says the Medes and Persians. Daniel says, got that, understood it. I got that when I first saw the vision. But what about this other one? Let me tell you, because remember now, 
he didn't know who the leopard was in the last vision, and he really didn't know who the, uh, this particular goat was, but I'm sure that Daniel was a brilliant man. In fact, we know he was brilliant. Um, and we were pretty sure that he understood that the goat and the, and the leopard from the previous vision, along with the first vision that Nebuchadnezzar had, was all connected. But here, for the first time, we get a clear picture exactly who this is, 400 years before Alexander becomes king. This is before Xerxes invades Greece. This is before the 300 Spartans fight off an invasion. This is before all of that happens, 400 years. And God is telling them that this goat that's going to destroy the Persian Empire is Greece. It's pretty powerful. But then he gets into verse 23, and this is where, it, and this is where it's important, Right? This is where verse 23 through 25, you can even say 26, is where God is trying to let Daniel know and let the children of Israel know that it's going to get dark in Israel. And if they think they're having a rough time now, it's going to get worse. And if they think that it's going to get bad now, just wait. Because there's going to come a time where this abomination of desolation, which we're going to read about later on, is, is going to happen. And this individual is going to rise up. He's going to rise up with intrigue. He's going to ride up, rise up with, with um, uh, skill and ability to be able to subvert the children of God. And this actually happens. There was a, a very strong uh, high priest that was in Israel at the time who was murdered and, it, and then the next high priest was appointed by this horrible king, Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes. And this, this terrible um, uh, uh, high priest leads the nation of Israel down a very dark road that ends with having a statue of Zeus in there. And according to tradition and history, Antiochus Epiphanes brought a, 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 a pig into the actual Holy of Holies, slashed its throat as an offering to Zeus and spread the pig blood all over the inside of the temple, defiling it for any Jewish ceremony that could possibly be, um, be conducted. And that's kind of the reason why Hanukkah is the way it is. Hanukkah has those eight nights and because it takes that long for the temple to actually have a ritual cleansing to be able to, to, to perform the ceremonies necessary to worship God through sacrifice again. And the Jews were always going through these periods of time where they had to define themselves without having a sacrifice in the temple, much like they have now. And so Daniel is being told all this is happening. And look what happens in verse 27. Daniel says he looked at all this stuff and he was exhausted, and he was sick for, for, for days, for many days. And after that, he got up and did what God caused him to do. So we talked about this being historical. We talked about this being spiritual. I think we've talked a lot about the spiritual component of this. But what about the practical? So what? what, 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 what so what? So why are we even studying this? Is it just for those of us? Because obvious, the majority of this, in fact, all of this, is historical for us. For Daniel, it was prophecy. But for us, this is all history. This has all happened. This has all happened. It's in the history books. There's no denying it. Everything we talked about today in this particular passage has already happened in the history of God's people and the history of the world. So what? So where are we going to put, the, uh, put, put our faith in this? I think the big so what here is this, is that God is omniscient. That means he's all-powerful, all-knowing. He has all knowledge. 
Nothing takes him by surprise. He raises up who he chooses and he tears down who he chooses. But there's something else that I thought that we could go to. If you have your Bibles, let's flip uh, back a few, cha a few books to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah wrote in, in his thing before Daniel. Daniel actually was, was fond of reading the prophet Isaiah. So in Isaiah chapter 46, and we're going to close with this. Um, in Isaiah chapter 46, starting in verse 9, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to us. He says this, Remember the former things long past. This is what we're doing today. Remembering the history, right? Remember the former things of, law, of long past. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Look what else it says. And I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. And I have planned it and surely I will do it. Now he goes on to talk about listening to me, stubborn-minded, and those of you who are far from righteous. But the area I want you to really look at is verses nine through 11. God is trying to tell us, Remember the things that have happened. Remember the times in past when, when you thought you didn't have a hope, when you didn't know what was going to happen next, when you looked at the nation, you looked at the world, and you said, what is going on? When you start staring at the world and you start saying, where is my hope? Where can I, where can I stand? Where is my strength come from? God is saying, I am God. I am in control. I've been in control in the past. I've been in control in your present. And I'm going to continue to be in control in the future. And so if we are struggling with the, with the now, we have to remember that he has been there in the past. And we need to know he's going to be here in the future. A lot of times people say, well, I was praying for God's will. I was praying that God's will would happen. The problem I see oftentimes is that we often mistake God's will for our will. Oftentimes we think that when God, when we want something to happen so bad, that God must want that same thing to happen. But it hasn't. And then we get discouraged or we get distressed or we ask ourselves, well, why, God? Why didn't you do what I asked you to do? The reality is, is that God's will is more important than our will. And sometimes the answer to our prayers is simply no. When my mother was dying, and her lung capacity was diminished. And she was only able to take in about 20% about of the oxygen that her, that her body needed. I remember laying hands on her. I remember uh, anointing her head with oil. I remember begging my God, who is a miracle maker and a miracle worker, to heal my mother completely so that she might be able to live long enough to see more of my children have children. And to be able to see my children get married, to be able to see my children graduate, to be able to be a part of our lives in a time when I know that she would be a benefit to them. And unfortunately, my God, who loved my mother and wanted my mother to come to heaven as much as he wants me there, but for whatever reason chose, instead of taking me and leaving her, he chose to take her and commanded me to go on. And the answer to my prayer was no. How many times have you prayed to God diligently and his answer to you was no? How many times when we got that no, did we say, you know, God, gotcha. 
not my will, but yours be done. Or how many times we get angry and we try to force our will. You can't do that. So I'm here to tell you today, God is still on the throne. He is still in control. And if you're sitting in your home or in wherever you're at watching this video and you're struggling with answers, answers that God is giving you, but you aren't ready to receive, I'm here to tell you God wants you to know that he loves you, that he is going to serve you and lift you up and build you up and give you the hope you need, but you need to be willing to accept his answers, the good ones and the ones that we don't like. And so if you're sitting here this morning and, and you're saying, I, I get all that, but the one thing I really want to know is, am I going to be in heaven when it's all said and done? I can tell you this, scripture talks about that. Many times in the New Testament, it says, I write these things unto you that you may know, that you know that you have eternal life. You know, Jesus himself said, I come to seek and save that as which, which was lost. And then at the end of his ministry here on earth, he says, I go to a place to prepare for you. And when it's ready, I will come and get you. We know that there is eternal life waiting. We know there is a heaven to shoot for and a hell to avoid. We know that Jesus is desperately wanting all men to be saved, but we also know that not all men will be saved. We know that Jesus is offering a free gift, but we know that we have to still receive that gift. The Bible is very clear. He says, I stand at the door knocking, and anybody that is willing to come and wouldn't open the door, I will come in and I will sit and I will eat with them and I will make them my own. We know that. Because that's what scripture teaches. And we can trust it because we know that the prophecies written in Daniel that happened 400 years before they happened, happened. And if he can figure out what's going to happen 400 years in Daniel's future, I think he can handle four minutes in our future, or four years, or 14 years, or 40 years in our future. And I can trust my salvation to him. And when he says that none are righteous, no, not one, I can trust that. When he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, I can trust that. When he says that if we will repent of our sins, bow our will before him and acknowledge him, acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord of all, that he will save us. We can trust that too. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I implore you, do not let the sun set today without getting your heart right with him. If you don't know how, in the chat, as you're watching this, there will be a plan of salvation that's set down for you that you can take and follow and know that you have eternal life. If you're not content to follow an internet website, then I guarantee you there'll be somebody watching on this that will pop in there and say, please, send me a message. And we will walk you through it. If you're sitting here today and you say, Pastor, I know Jesus, I'm saved, but I'm just struggling. I'm struggling with depression. I'm struggling with sadness. I'm struggling with whatever. 
Whatever it is you're struggling, Jesus has an answer for it. I guarantee if you just reach out to one of us here, we will help you find in God's word a pathway forward, a next step. If you are sitting here and you know Jesus and you love him and you're asking, what do you do next? I think first and foremost is you pray. Second thing you do is ask God to show you your next step. Who do you meet with? Who do you talk with? Who do you reach out in social media? Who are you going to text? Who are you going to talk to? Who are you going to tell and begin the process of discipling and bringing people closer to Jesus? We all have a job to do. We need to be about the kingdom work. Daniel, after the vision was done, after he recovered from such a traumatic event, Bible says he got up and he did the king's business. In a few minutes, we're going to pray. I'm going to have a song that we're going to we're going to put up on there, um, probably one that we've sang many times. And after that song is over with, I want to encourage you to get up out of your chair and get back to doing the king's business. Let's pray. Father, I love you, and I know you've got a plan and a pathway for us. Lord, I don't know who's listening and I don't know who is gonna be watching this video that needs to hear it. But Father, whenever this video is watched by whoever watches it, I just ask your spirit will infect and invest in them and bring them to a place where they are closer to you than they ever were before. Father, if there's anyone under the sound of my voice that has not heard your, has never fallen down on their face and repented of their sins and, and, and followed you, Father, I ask that you will give them the opportunity to do that today. Father, if there's anybody in here that's or is listening to this that needs to know what next, Father, I ask that you reveal to them. And Father, I know that sometimes the next step is simply to pray and to wait on you because you are God, to be still and know that you're on the throne. But whatever that next step is, Father, I ask you to reveal it to us. For those of us that are loved, that love you and are called according to your purpose, Father, I ask that you'll make your pathway known to us. Lord, as we close out this service time, I just pray that your word will be transformative this week and you encourage individuals that have heard your word read and preached to begin to live and to be the church you've called them to be. And Lord, allow us to get up out of our chairs now that we've heard your word and be about the king's business. We pray this now in the name of your son and our precious savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. My friends, go with God this week.